A quote commonly attributed to Benjamin Franklin says, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. This isn't an exhaustive list. And I think there are things that you could add to that quote. One of them being our topic for today. Divorce. It's something that has touched every single one of us. You may be somebody who has personally gone through the traumatic experience of divorce. You may be someone who, as a child, experienced the fruits of your parents divorcing. Or you may have family or friends and you've walked closely or at a distance with them as they've gone through and even sought your advice. We all have experienced the fruits of divorce. And while we inherently know that there's something hard and wrong about it, there's many ways in which people try to deal with this. One of the ways that people try to deal currently is through celebrating it. You can go online and Pinterest has page after page of ways in which you can celebrate your divorce. And it's a way, I think, of people trying to nullify and, and dampen the hardness of what took place. Some people are trying to prepare for it. You, there's calculators online that you can find out the odds of you being divorced based on your education level, your gender, and the age in which you got married. So with all that, though, we know that there's something just not right about divorce. No one goes into it with a time frame about how long they want to be married and it's okay at that point, then they can move on from there. It's, we, we know that those that are single are, are not looking for somebody that can do for now. They're looking for somebody that can do for the long haul. And we, there's just something difficult and not right about divorce. And so it's with that, not only in our culture, but in the day of Jesus, that Jesus enters the scene and answers in this sermon what he has to say about divorce. So in this passage, we'll see that when God's vision and intention for marriage meets the brokenness and sinfulness of this world, Jesus prophetically challenges and pastorally cares for his people in his kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount that we've been in, we've titled this series, Flourish, Life in the Kingdom, because it's Jesus's vision for human flourishing. This is how the good life is, how life works best. And as we've been going, Jesus has been addressing the law and what it means for his law and his desire for the world and for those that are subjects in his kingdom. And so we've gotten to the point of divorce. But before we can specifically address what Jesus is teaching here, we have to understand that in the background or underneath the current, there is an understanding that Jesus has and his hearers have of this sermon on what the purpose of marriage is. For many of us, the purpose of marriage is just our personal pleasure or our personal development. That this 
person completes me and marriage is therefore about me and me getting better. But that's not the vision that God originally laid out about what the purpose of marriage is. As you look scripturally, you can see marriage as one of the primary themes that runs through the whole thing. That the Bible begins in a marriage and it ends in a marriage supper or another marriage. And in the beginning, God created humanity to reflect his image and and to show the world what he's like. Now, one of the ways that we have come to understand what God is like through the scriptures revealed in Jesus is that God is triune, which means he's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have eternally existed as fully and equally God. And it's within this relationship of Father, Son, Spirit as one that there's care, there's submission, and ultimately that there's fullness of love. God didn't need to create to express his love, that he already had the expression and experience of love within himself. And it's out of that that God created Adam and Eve to express that to other people. He created them in his image so that they could experience what he was like and so that they can reflect him to the world. So when we see the story of Adam and Eve, when Adam is created first and he names all the animals, he finds no suitable helper. He doesn't find a true companion that is like him, that is equal with him in kind so that he can experience that love that God created him for. And so it's not good in the sense of it's evil. It's not good is that it's, he's not properly reflecting God's image yet. And so that's when Eve comes along as a suitable help, helper, one in kind, but separate from in gender. They come together. And what does it say? The, the husband shall leave the father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. Two becoming one. We see in the Trinity that there are three who's and one what. Let me unpack this for a second. You and I are one what and one who. I'm Justin, who, I'm a human, a what. Now, you look at story characters, you look at R2-D2 of Star Wars, for instance. R2-D2, he's a one who and one what. But then there's other characters that expand on that idea. Think of Optimus Prime from Transformers. He is uh, one who, Optimus Prime, but he's two what's. He is both robot and truck. One what's, two who's. The Trinity is three who's in one what. Three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, in one, as one God. He doesn't, God, there isn't one God showing up in three different ways. That's not what the scriptures teach. He is three persons in the one true God. So what happens in marriage? There are two who's that become one flesh or one what? Husband and wife, two who's that become one in flesh. They are united. And it is in this experience, it is in this covenant relationship that proclaims sacrifice and care and submission and pleasure 
and ultimately love. That that's the relationship, that covenant relationship that God has designed as a way in which he reflects his nature to the world and that we as people can experience what it's like to be made in the image of God. And so that relationship points to another relationship that Ephesians 5 addresses, that it's the mystery of Christ and the church, that we who were once sinners, who have been brought near to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are now in a covenant relationship with him. And that we in our covenant relationship with him are portrayed as a husband and a wife. We are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. And one day at the end of it all, we will have the fulfillment of that love and pleasure one day. And yet in the midst of it, we in our marriage relationships get to experience this nature of God and experience the vision of marriage in that covenant relationship But we also know that that itself points to another picture, another day that will have the fulfillment of what marriage is all about. That relationship, that covenant, that union, that love environment will truly be experienced when Jesus returns and renews and restores all of creation. So marriage is the experience of love, of sacrifice, of care, of submission. It's the place where we get to reflect God and show the world what it's God is like in how we love one another and how we show the world the gospel in a way because it reflects and portrays a covenant relationship between two who's that are becoming one what. So before we go and we address the passage that we are in today, I want to pause for a moment and I want you to reflect and converse around this vision of marriage. You'll see on your screen two questions. I want everybody in the room to have an opportunity to share. So take a brief moment to answer those two questions And then I'm going to invite you back and we'll continue into the passages. I'm going to invite you back together. And we're going to look at the specific texts that Jesus is speaking out of here today. Now, let me remind you that Jesus is presented as the better Moses. He is the one that's come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And we're in the middle of this section where he's given six different examples of how his rendering and giving of the law doesn't just address the actions of the people. He goes deeper into the heart's intention behind it. And so in this passage of divorce, Jesus is speaking regarding both the Mosaic law and how the Pharisees and contemporaries of his day were interpreting and applying that law. And then out of that, we'll look at what Jesus is actually teaching in this passage. So let's first look at the uh, Mosaic Law briefly. We find the uh, specific law about divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So let me just read this, summarize it, and then bring it to a close. Um, 
Chapter 24 of Deuteronomy says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs from his house. Okay, so hold those different checkboxes. It then goes to unpack if, then if she remarries and that husband does the exact same thing. Then verse 4, um, the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife for she has been defiled. And that is an abomination to the Lord. Okay. So what Mo- Moses was addressing, he was in the midst of communicating and, and preaching to the new generation that's about to enter into the promised land and giving them an understanding of what the law was at the time. He was um, there was a chaotic understanding of divorce, and he's dry, trying to bring order to the chaos. But ultimately what he's trying to do, he's trying to help the Israelites understand the magnitude of the decision. He's not giving them a checklist. He's saying divorce is a big deal. It's final. It's not something that you can come back to later as if you follow the rules. This is a big deal. So be careful, pay attention, but don't do it frivolous, frivolously. So you take that and then you enter into the contemporaries of Jesus and you see them and their, uh, what they're thinking a lot in chapter 19. You see this in verse 3 when the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Remember, the Pharisees are meticulous about the following of the law. So for them, the following of the law meant if there was anything indecent in her that did not uh, meet my standards. I mean, it says that in the law. So you have contemporaries of Jesus that were saying, oh, if she doesn't, isn't pleasing to the eye anymore, you can go ahead and divorce her and marry somebody else. Uh, or if she burnt your food or added too much salt in your food, that was cause for divorce. And so it really diminished women in this day. And so for them though, they're saying, hey, we can, we're doing the law. What does Deuteronomy say? Well, uh, she's no favor in my eyes. Check. She has found some indecency. Check. I wrote her a certificate of divorce. Check. I gave it to her. Put it in her hand. Check. I sent her out of the house. Check. And she departed. I've done what I can do. My hands are washed. I can now go about doing what I'd like to do. And what Jesus is coming to say is, no, no, that's not what's happening. Because he realizes that what they were doing was they were abusing the law. They were trying to find justification for their own actions. They weren't actually going around the heart behind the law. What does Jesus say is there the, uh, where their heart is at? Like, Because remember, after that, Jesus is saying, no, no. They ask him the question. He goes back to the creation. He says, no, don't separate what God has put together. The two have become one flesh. Um, and then they go to say, well, why did Moses command to give a certificate of force and send her away? We're just doing what the law requires of us. And what does Jesus say? Verse 8, because of your hardness of hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So this is the prophetic challenge to what Jesus is and how Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. Don't be frivolous with divorce. 
What is he in essence saying? Divorce is wrong. Divorce is not my intention in the creation. It is an outworking of the sinfulness that is within humanity. So pay attention. This is a big deal. And so while he's prophetically challenging them, he also recognizes, and this is an amazing, gracious, merciful God that we serve. He knows that we are in a fallen nation, fallen um, place. And so while it's not desirable, it is allowable in certain situations. And Jesus lays that out in, ver- in chapter 5. He says, but I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let me unpack these three pieces for a moment. So in the kingdom and what God's desire is, is that divorce is wrong, but he gives allowable and permissible reasons And what is that reason? Excuse me, one reason, sexual immorality. This is the Greek term porneia. This is the one thing that God allows divorce for in his kingdom, and that's for an affair. The one partner sleeping with another person. That is the breaking of the covenant bond. So what Jesus Jesus understands, he gets it. Even people in his kingdom are going to fall. And so what is this permissible, allowable way in which he does it? He talks about sexual immorality. Paul expands on that in in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not going to spend too much time on that, but just if I want to draw your attention there. Uh, He expands it if a believing spouse and there's an unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving spouse leaves and if the first, if the believing spouse does everything they can, you just have to let them go. Paul expands that breaking of the covenant bond. But in the words of Jesus, it's a sexual immorality. Okay, so what happens if somebody gives a certificate of divorce, tries to divorce somebody without that? This is what Jesus is addressing in that part where he says he makes her commit adultery. In the day and age when Jesus was living, for a woman to be given a certificate of divorce and sent away, there's only three options. And I think this is what Jesus was addressing. The first one is for her to go back to her family. Now, this was not desirable because now she's in a degraded position. She's not looked highly upon And so this is not something that would be a good setup for her. The second one was for her to uh, remarry. Like the first one, though, this is not desirable in that that would likely mean that husband would be looking down upon her and using that against her to keep her in a degraded position. The third option was the option of prostitution that she could enter into that world, and she, which would be the continual posture of committing adultery. And so what was happening? What is Jesus addressing? He's not saying if you have uh, divorced somebody, you are an adulterer. That's not what's taking place here. 
He's unpacking the context of the time. And he's saying, no, that is making her to commit adultery because the permissible nature, if that has not been followed, then the remarriage is not a permissible remarriage. It's the bond has not been broken and therefore that remarriage is going to be an adulterous action. That's why it says also in the last part, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The bond, that new bond is not justifiable because the first bond was not broken justifiably. There's a lot of implications to this. Remember, this is Jesus's prophetic challenge and call for the people of God of what it means to live in his kingdom. And so I'm going to pause. We will get to a lot of the questions about what about this and what about that. But before we do that, I want to pause and allow you to have another conversation for a few moments. And then I'm going to invite you back into the rest of our time. And let me call you back and we're going to finish this last portion. Now remember, Jesus has just prophetically called and challenged his people and the Pharisees in particular about divorce. Remember, this is a big deal. This is not something to be taken frivolously or entered into without much thought and care. But he's also not giving us a new list to follow. That's one of the things that he's consistently challenging the Pharisees on. Remember, they were just looking for a checklist. Well, I gave her a certificate of divorce. I can move on. So Jesus is not doing that in this. Some people go to this text and say, okay, am I now in a place where I can? Am I allowed to divorce this person? So Jesus isn't necessarily doing that. This situation and this topic requires a ton of care and thought and prayer and support. And so as we continue, I need to preface this with saying, you're going to have a lot of questions and whatabouts and all the different situations that could come up from this, whether you've experienced it, you've personally wrestled with it or currently contemplating it. And so I'm going to just let you know, we cannot in this form address all of those questions and thoughts and situation. Each dynamic, each relationship Each process is so unique that so many people want to have what about conversations and they are absolutely necessary, but in this form, they're not able to be addressed. But what I do want to do is I just want to give us and transition us to the recognition of Jesus's pastoral care in the midst of this. Because he knows, even as he prophetically calls people saying, hey, this is a big deal. Don't take this frivolously. He even gives us an example of what is allowable. He knows his people are going to fall. He knows they're going to make mistakes. He knows the frailness of our world. And so out of his grace and care, he still says, hey, there are situations where while divorce is not ideal, it is allowable. And so let's remember that as we go into this. And what is that um, situation? He says it explicitly being sexual immorality. Now, what, there's a lot of whatabouts that come from that. What about the other 
reasons that could be for divorce. Typically, those are adultery, abuse, whether physical or emotional, or abandonment. And like I said, physical, emotional as well there. Now, I'll, I'm just going to say this as a blanket statement. Remember, each case is unique, and we as God's people need to seek His wisdom on how to approach each of these at times effectively. But what I will say is no one should be in a situation where their physical well-being is a concern. So if that is the case, please do let somebody know. Reach out to somebody. Get yourself out of that situation where you're physically concerned for your well-being so that you can actually um, be safe and then pursue the potential of reconciliation out of that. So, like I said, each situation is unique. Each dynamic is needing uh, care and concern. And so, whether you are somebody that has in the past experienced abuse, abandonment, or adultery, whether you are contemplating divorce, or you have been impacted by the fruits of this, let me first just give you some good news. Jesus personally knows where you are and he's personally experienced what you are experiencing. Not only does Hebrews tell us that he's been tempted in every way as we are but without sin, but he himself has experienced abuse, abandonment, and adultery. He's experienced Adultery, we find in the Old Testament that Israel was adulterous in their pursuit of foreign gods. He has been cheated on by his people. When we look to others to find our satisfaction and worth, when we sin against him, that is out of an adulterous heart looking to foreign gods. This is idolatry. And so he knows that. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. Think of the when he's on the cross. His disciples desert him. Peter denies him three times. He has been abandoned. And we know that he has been abused on the cross. He took the pain of being beaten and scourged and crucified. He knows the effects of sin on her, our lives. He has experienced those, and yet he's also died for them. He has forgiven those things. Whether you are the perpetrator or you are the recipient of Jesus has paid the penalty on the cross for those sins. And not just this, that he's forgiven, Jesus desires to heal from the fruits of that. He wants to make us whole as his disciples. Now we know that that will ultimately happen in the new heavens and new earth when all sin is completely wiped away. And so we cling to that hope in the midst of this broken world that one day every sin will be um, gone. We will walk in a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus again like the garden was meant to be. And so in the midst of that ultimate healing that will one day come, Jesus is going about bringing healing and wholeness 
and restoration to us now by his spirit. And so know that he has not left you, he has not forsaken you in the midst of this, that Jesus is close to the brokenhearted we read in the scriptures. He is personally acquainted with, and he desires to be with you, to walk with you, not to give you a heavier yoke, but to bring wholeness and healing out of your personal experience or whether you've been impacted by it. But if you are in the process of contemplating, he's also there with you by his spirit. And so let me give some, a few different principles on what it means for God's people to personally wrestle with the topic of divorce. The first one is that this um, requires and reveals our need for community. We need community. Whether we're in the process of a difficult relationship that's needing to be restored back to health and wholeness, whether we're in the process of considering uh, taking the step towards divorce, or we're even experiencing healing and from our own experience and impact. All of this reveals our need for a gospel-centered community. Brothers and sisters in Christ that love Jesus, that bring the gospel to bear on your heart. Not so that you can just uh, continue in your complaining for, by chance, but people that love you, that point you to Jesus, that bring you and to our own sin and bring you to wholeness. Examples that you can follow, loving relationships that you can learn from. Leaders that have walked with others through this, that have wisdom and spirit empowerment and wholeness that can bring you good news and bring advice to a specific situation. Even godly counselors in the community that can process through the areas of your own heart that are broken, that need healing and wholeness. So this reveals our need for community. This is not a decision that should be made on our own. That's part of the prophetic challenge of the frivolous nature. You just can't say, ah, I'm going to divorce, I'm out. No, there's a need for community and wisdom in God's people. But I will say that the posture that should be taken is one of radical reconciliation. Je Jesus has already called his people in the dynamic of anger and, and when addressing that to radical reconciliation. And so that is also bleeding through here. Remember, he's not desiring that. He knows the ramifications of that. But we as God's people, as we walk through this, as we work with others, should be a people that are pursuing the radical reconciliation. It shouldn't be divorce as a first option. We should be pursuing reconciliation. And why is that? Because we, the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. When we have abandoned God, when we have sinned and worshipped idols and adultered against God, when we have been part of the physical and emotional abuse of God, we've grieved the Spirit. Jesus pursued us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He does not come for the healthy. He comes for those that know that they are sick. So the gospel is one of radical reconciliation. And so that should be our heart. That should be the reason and the posture we take in the midst of this. And we do that because Jesus has done that for us. 
And so I know that there's so many questions. If you're in a place of contemplating or needing to process through, please reach out to your missional community leader. Reach out to one of the elders of our local church because we want to process with you how the Spirit wants to bring wholeness to. And these are all reminders of the fallen, broken world that we're part of. And it was in that world that Jesus entered. He came to live a perfect life. He died, he came to die on the cross for our sins, for our abuse, our abandonment, our adultery, our our sin. And he rose again victorious over those very things. And so as God's people, that is why we go to the table. We remember that. We remember that our sins have been forgiven, that those who have sinned against us have been forgiven that we have been reconciled to a holy God and we are to be a people that are pursuing radical reconciliation. And so, Soma, I invite you back to our, the table. We're on the Zoom room where we will take this together to remind one another of what Jesus has done for us. So let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you that you are personally acquainted, that you personally know what we are and have experienced. And so that you are close to my friends who have experienced or dealing with the impact of this topic. So Jesus, I pray by your spirit right now, you are ministering to them, that you are bringing wholeness to them. Thank you for using your body, the body of Christ, to bring about that wholeness and to bring about that reconciliation. Thank you, Jesus, that you have pursued us in our sin and that gives us a reason why we can pursue others. Thank you, Jesus, for your vision and intention for marriage, that it has met the brokenness of our world while you prophetically call us to not take this divorce um, as if it's not a big deal but that you've also pastorally cared for us and you've given us ways in which we can address this. So Father, thank you that all of this is available because of your life, death, and resurrection. And we go to the table and conclude our time together with that reality. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.